This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Narrative Dungeons. Christoph Sapinski. Tattooing Cthulhu. And Rosaline Norton. As our beloved and sleekly accessorized listeners well know, our heads are full of ideas for games. Uh, Sorry, I can't hear you over all these game ideas. If you are anything like us, you've also got some great ideas for games bubbling in your cranial region. But unlike excruciatingly humble podcast hosting game designers like ourselves, you may not know what to do next. Atlas Games to the rescue. The White Box, created by Atlas Games and Game Playwright, is a game design workshop in a box. It contains a ton of generic components. Components like meeples, cubes, dice, tokens, and discs. And includes a 200-page book of 25 essays about game design and publishing. With topics like... Refining your design. Playtesting. Crowdfunding. And how to work a convention. In short, the white box has everything you need to get your game idea out of your head and onto the table. You can get the white box right now everywhere tabletop games are sold. Seriously, I can't even hear you over these game ideas. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut, where our Patreon backers seem to have been stirred up by our expression of love for dungeons, because we've gotten a lot of questions that boil down to, really? Dungeons? <laughs> this is a, a pretty good, really, so... No, no, I mean, I'm not... First of all, there are Patreon backers. Quality, really. Every one of their questions is... Absolutely wonderful, especially once we polish them. But Brian Malcolm, Patreon backer Brian Malcolm, asks a terrific question of the really school asking, how do you make dungeons narratively interesting? Something other than an endless stream of unconnected rooms with antisocial monsters and traps? And first of all, that's plenty interesting, but I suspect we can do even better than that. Robin what you got? Right. Uh, so I guess the question is, what is interesting, or rather, who finds what interesting? Because I think that as we discussed the the power of the dungeon in an earlier episode, that there are lots of people who, for whom, an endless stream of unrelated rooms, uh, full of uh, truculent creatures, uh, and uh, and the treasures they are sitting on, uh, is perfectly fine. That's that's yeah. what they want. That gives them agency, freedom of choice, room for tactical improvisation of all kinds. Yeah, exactly. So yes. Uh, so, you know, the regular dungeon for a lot of different, uh, player types, if I may bring in my, uh, you know, my classic, uh, player type, uh, matrix that, uh, you know, butt kickers, they're good. They're happy. Uh, tacticians, uh, that gives them all sorts of, uh, room to, to maneuver in. Power gamers, that's where they get to use the powers. It's once you get to the, the method actor and the storyteller players, uh, e- even the casual gamer, I think, likes a dungeon. Cause yeah, it's, and I think method actors can like them as long as there's at least one monster that you have to plead with or bully instead of just stab. Exactly so. So, presumably, uh, if you're doing this, wanting to make a dungeon more interesting, you either have, uh, you know, sort of a split within the group where half the group loves the dungeon and the other half wants more story in it, or the GM needs more story in order to justify all the work of stopping Yeah, as I believe we've also talked about, dungeons tire out GMs much sooner than they tire out players. Right. 
Uh, so that's sort of the, the context in, in which this happens. Because, of course, if you have a group of players who are all story-focused, who are looking for something that feels like a novel or a movie or whatever, uh, they want might want to dip briefly into a dungeon, because there's you know, all sorts of dungeon-y scenes in those things. In but, both novels and movies. Yeah, but if, if everybody wants story, the question of how do we make a dungeon more story-like, uh, you don't really need You just yeah. make a story and have a dungeon in it whenever there's a dungeon. So, yeah, Beowulf. Uh, Beowulf solved that problem. Exactly. So we've got uh, the, the situation we have here then is that we have uh, half the people who are super happy with a sort of a sandboxy dungeon without narrative elements, and we're trying to make it more story-focused for uh, the other half of the group. So uh, step one, I think, is... Uh, give a meaning or theme or motif to the dungeon that relates to those characters. So uh, just as in a dramatic scene, the question is, you know, what do I want from the other person I'm in the scene from? Uh, the question is, what do these storyteller or method actor players want emotionally from the dungeon? What, mm-hmm. what, what arc is this going to fit? You know, and the uh, dungeon may not be, uh, you know, ready to... to to be- become a surrogate father to them and uh, deal with their, you know, sense of abandonment, but it might be able to, uh, you know, grant them the uh, the power and influence they want to go back and impress their real father or uh, whatever that is. So, and you can cheat when it comes to this. So, ask those story-oriented players, what do you expect to get out of the dungeon? Why are you going down there? How will this... What drives you into a dungeon of all What drives you into a dungeon? So rather than trying, first of all, to think of what that would be and then impose that on them, take advantage of the fact that you can talk to your players to to find out what that would be. And again, don't force that on the casual player or the tactician. The tactician will look at you funny. Uh, The casual player will will feel that uh, they've been put on the spot. But the storyteller and method actor character, you know, so what you're doing there is you're setting up the beginning of an arc. In storytelling terms, you're posing the question. So if the answer is, well, I need to find the particular magic mirror I need in order to then be able to go and, uh, you know, impress the truculent uh, father of my true love and, and get to marry him. You know, I, I have a romantic intention that I need to solve with a MacGuffin that you, GM, will now proceed to conveniently put in the dungeon. So pose a question, what problem does the dungeon possibly solve for the characters who want narrative. By putting it baldly, that's basically what the old gothic castle did in the gothic, which was the first of our beautiful genres and the father of all of them, is that it provided the emotional and architectural reflection of the interior torment and uh, uh, bad desires of the heroine, usually, uh, sometimes a hero, but usually a heroine. And in many cases, uh, I mean, Castle of Otranto, the the dungeon element, uh, namely the castle and the enormous armor, is literally daddy issues. And so, I mean, that's that's old. That goes all the way back to good old Walpole. So yep. the other uh, possibility that I use myself is to give the dungeon a story that you can uncover as you are going into it. And this can be the very, very standard, oh, this used to be a prison that was set up by the giants, and then they died in a plague, and then the dwarves took it over, and then the dwarves were killed by a balrog, and then a necromancer came in, and he reanimated them and made them his servants and turned it into his necromancer palace, and on the top of it, a graveyard has grown up full of vampires and monsters. And so, as you dig down into the dungeon, you are basically engaged in archaeology of 
the deed by uncovering the narrative elements that went into making the dungeon a story. And if you can foreground those... It's at those, the Mountains of Madness. You look at the freeze and you see the vast right. prehistory and you put a whole story together. And so in, in that instance, the story... Uh, the characters are sort of a, a spectator to that story, but again, you can find a way to... Well, first of all, they might find that perfectly cool. That's Yeah, uh, and you know. second of all, in uh, Mountains of Madness, the punchline is that uh, humanity is created by the uh, Elder Things as a hilarious prank. And so the it becomes relevant to the characters in the sense it's not that, oh, I hope I find evidence of man's meaninglessness. That's not their drive, no. but it is... The, <laughs> they were hoping not to find that, actually. It is the narrative consequence of um, uh, of being in a Lovecraft story, and in, in some cases, the narrative consequences of being in a F20 story, they probably aren't that uh, dire, but they may be sort of outside the character in the sense that they open up some mystery or answer about the world, whether it be, oh, this is where the the um uh, the the orb came from it was actually uh you know his uh, toe socket joint uh, from this necromancer and so we just have to find all these other dead necromancers all over the world and figure out what parts of them someone's trying to make the urlich out of or whatever right and, and so you're establishing a clue or a key to understanding the world at large and it might not even be that rod of seven parts obvious it might just be giving them a gestalt sense of how the world operates that oh there used to be giants and then there were dwarves and then there were necromancers that's the three stages of our world and now that we know that we can start looking around for giant ruins because they're going to be the ones that have probably the oldest and most powerful artifacts in them right uh, another way that you can make a dungeon into a story is to make it more of a mystery because of course the mystery is an elemental form of storytelling so uh, there is a uh, a question uh, a literal question that the dungeon poses uh, it could be why has this dungeon reappeared or what malign force has activated all of the creatures in the dungeon to go around uh, and in classic beginning of dungeon stories fashion start to uh, raid the local populace so uh, and uh, a great sort of three-act structure for that is the uh, disorder represented by the dungeon becomes apparent and that can be something happening outside of the dungeon uh, and uh, so there's some form of disorder in town or in a settlement or on the nearest ranch and you and see that disorder in the first act, the little prologue is about introducing that problem. And then the beginning of the second act is they find the dungeon. Cobalt, yeah? We ain't yeah. seen them since the great winner of Ot 9. Exactly. And then once they get to the dungeon, uh, by that time they have the mystery, you know, who is, uh, you know, what's going on here, who's responsible for this. And uh, it's also in a mystery format, often uh, fruitful to have what seems to be going on and then discover partway through that it's not really what's going on. So by the time you reach the dungeon, you've done a certain amount of investigation, and you've po- you've learned from the local uh, uh, folk that oh, it's the it's the dragon ring. Uh, someone has stolen the dragon ring, and and uh, when it's not on its proper perch, uh, the kobolds go uh, wild, and then uh, all sorts of trouble follows. And then once you get down there, you'll find that there's something completely different about the dragon ring. It may be that the people who live in the dungeon actually have more of a claim on it than the uh, the ones outside, and there's they sort of uh, you know have a have a good reason for for doing what they're doing, uh, uh, except of course for you know all the murder and killing. And so that's mm-hmm. like, do we just wipe out all these intelligent creatures and then uh, take the ring back, or do we try and you know, do, is there a twist at the end where it's like you find out who's responsible and then you uh, try to negotiate a peace agreement? So that's not a, a twist in the mystery so much as a, a moral dilemma, which is a basically it's Star Trek 
Okay, I've mm-hmm. given it away. You're doing Star Trek in this right. version. Thanks. Uh, the other uh, uh, possibility is that you personify the dungeon, and that can be, like we talked about earlier, that it's uh, personified by some person who's relevant to one of the characters. Their, you know, their their uh, uh, mother, the great uh, uh, druid, uh, went down into this dungeon and disappeared, and now her spirit haunts it. Or maybe uh, their mother, the great architect, built the dungeon, and they have to sort of figure it out by knowing what her personality is. Or there's the sort of more standard way to personify a dungeon, which is it's the place where the big bad lives. So it's a big bad dragon or a big bad necromancer, or a big bad lich or something. And its personality is imposed on all the dungeon dwellers who either fear them or rebel against them or uh, serve them happily. And so you, as you sort of build out the politics, if it were, of the dungeon ecology, you begin to get a sense, oh, we can turn this population against that population, and you can start playing it as a chess game between the players, uh, well-armed malcontents, and the um, uh, the, the dungeon keeper, dungeon uh, entity. Uh, one hesitates to say dungeon master, because that sends us down a trail, but the <laughs> but the Lord of the Dungeon is got their own agenda, whatever it happens to be. Even if it's just keep well our malcontents out of my dungeon, that's still something the players are going to oppose. But ideally, it should be a larger agenda to you know subsume the whole province under the iron claw of um, uh, Nergal or whatever it happens to be. And then you're like, oh well, we have to undo that agenda because iron claws um, totally bad for my allergies or whatever. And um, you work out the personality of your foe by the sorts of uh, tactics that its uh, servitors use and by the sorts of entities or beings that are more reluctant to serve the foe and maybe surrender a little fast and say, no, we're just here to guard the water wheel, but if you beat us up, we can't guard the water wheel, and I guess you can do whatever you want, like go down it to kill the ledge. That'd be fun. And then you're like, now are these guys selling us down the river just to placate the lich? Is that something that they're told to do? And you can start getting, I mean, you can go as three-dimensional chess as you want with these things because it gets down to how clever and willing to be engaged your players are with the uh, uh, dungeon lord uh, at the bottom of the at the bottom of the deepest crypt. Right. And uh, speaking of, uh, once you get to the bottom of the dungeon, and the final way to have your dungeon have sort of a narrative sweep to it is have closure on the dungeon. That it's uh, in some settings, there's sort of an eternal dungeon that's. Uh, you know, generation after generation of adventurers goes into and loots. It's sort of like a gold rush uh, analogy. And I've uh, written a a product on that theme, and and I'm about to write another product on that yes. theme. Yes, yes, um, you are. And so, uh, you know, in uh, the world in Dragon Pass, if if the big rubble just stopped being a thing, that would be a bummer. So, mm-hmm. but if you uh, you know, have a, a smaller, less canonical dungeon, as it were. Uh, one way to, to make it feel like a full narrative is that at the end, that dungeon is done with, that it uh, uh, collapses uh, when you get to the final room and defeat the big bad, and you have to do the classic run out of the uh, the dungeon and be uh, blown out by the force of the blast before it all collapses, or, you know, you have your volcano, or, you know, if it's a a uh, sunken city that's uh, risen above the waves. Well, guess what? It starts to sink again, or or just you know the the king's men finally show up, and you've killed uh, enough of the uh, the scariest creatures that the regular soldiers can just come in and occupy it, and you know maybe they just seal the doors shut, or maybe they occupy it, or or what have you. But eventually, at the end, you know you come up with a reason why. Well, uh, you've been triumphant in this dungeon, and that, that dungeon isn't there anymore, and. Uh, it's time to go off for some uh, wilderness adventures or some 
diplomacy or uh, some uh, swashbuckling or romance, whatever the change of pace is. And then the next time everybody gets a hankering for the dungeon, it's a whole new thing in a new place that poses a new question, has a new mystery, and perhaps again, a new closure at the end. And, oh, wait, am I mentioning closure at the end, Ken? You are. It's as though it was directed by some sort of question posed at the beginning that has now reached a final act. So let's get to the next segment. Let's do it. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green, available for pre-order now in the Pelgrane Press store. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? Hey everybody, it's once more time uh, for Ken and or Robin to talk to somebody else. This time we're talking to Christoph Sapinski, who has a Kickstarter now, for his game Free Spacer. Uh, Free Spacer, uh, we assume that this is a science fiction space opera game, correct? Yes, indeed. So what problem of the space opera game genre does it solve? Well, it um, attempts to bring science into science fiction. Uh, It's got no place there. Uh, that's what it seems to happen often, I think. Um, like, it's got uh, kind of like streamlined mechanics over the whole thing, but instead of having combat or something as an advanced mechanic, it has those as a regular mechanic, and the advanced mechanic are like science projects. We do projects like fabricate things or negotiate contracts and or, do all these kind of uh, Discover a stable micro black hole or something. Yeah, you can investigate those sorts of things using right. your ship's tools, working together, and all that fun stuff. So it, it's it's actually it's uh, not space opera it's science opera, right? It is. Yeah, it is. I don't know how much opera. I guess it depends on your well, culture I mean, skill. Yeah, <laughs> I, it, it's it's opera from the sense of it's drama. It's bigger than human concerns. It's hopefully riveting to play and watch. I hope so. Um, and but it's about science, right? It is. And uh, speaking of those greater than concern, it has like a faction system. Like is so popular in some science fiction games, where it's called the Cold War phase because right. a free spacer is a contractor who works for like one of the various factions that mm-hmm. are fighting for influence in their sector. Right, and um, you go out there and you basically do contracts, which is great for the GM to keep the players on there, and great for the players to get input into what the GM is going to prepare 
that week or next couple of weeks. And you go out there and you get those jobs done and that's how you get paid. And that's what your XP is. That's everything. So if you don't get paid. So the job would be to go and ride shotgun on a scientific experiment or to go and steal someone else's quantum singularity? What sort of jobs are we doing that we are being paid for? Well, the game... Filling out, filling out forms, of course. The job of the future. Well, yes, <laughs> obviously. It is all about that sort of thing. Bureaucracy. Uh, no, it's a... When you start a new campaign of it, you decide what sort of flag you're going to do. So you decide which type of game you want. You want to be bounty hunters, couriers. They're not smugglers. They're not smugglers at all. Um, agents, uh, mercenaries... Uh, that sort of thing. And then you do jobs that are generally swayed towards that kind of activity. Mm-hmm. And um, the contract system is it's a, it's a full type of project and it divides a contract between like obligation articles, privilege articles, stuff you get to help you do the job, and then trade articles, how you get paid. Right. And then you get those meaty trade goods that you can use to upgrade yourself and your ship. So if the uh, core activity is to go and do freelance science for hire yes. uh, who are the antagonists preventing me from sciencing um, they're the people already there who don't want you to show up and get in their way they're, uh, or the guy aliens. from the other faction who was hired to do the same thing and you beat out with a low bid exactly um, there are all those sorts of there's always there are all these different factions that are, are uh, doing this cold war against each other so they all have different assets some of those would be free spacers. They're a little bit rare. Others would be like big meaty things like a fleet or something. Mm-hmm. So you go there and you're sent to get a piece of technology of a shipwrecked ship. But of course, that shipyard is run by someone else and they're getting ships out of there and they don't want you going to get the technology they might not even know about yet off the big capital ship because they plan to make that capital ship the lead of their fleet. That sort of thing. And so what uh, is it about this genre and about uh, doing hard science in this genre that uh, appealed to you, that made you really want to do this as your passion project? Oh, well, uh, I just, I really love science fiction. It's been a passion of mine forever. Um, It's probably why I got into all this stuff. And I don't know, there's just something about when you watch movies and stuff that are actually science fiction and it's such a narrow range because there's so many awesome adventure and horror science and all these different things and you seldom see much coming right up the middle there it's it's a it's a kind of a difficult area and i i really wanted to try to see if i could just make that happen and i think i did so uh if uh adventure or horror break out in a game of free spacer is it like, oh no, that's a terrible, oh, we've ruined it now, we're, we're adventuring. Or is it a thing where you're still, you know, adventure and horror may exist in the, in the world, uh, but the focus of activity is uh, the science, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, you'll have all those things, but it's, it's never the focus. That's why the main mechanics aren't combat, right, not yeah. horror mechanics, they're... I mean, investigation is one of those many types of projects, but those projects work in the same way. Travel works in a similar Mm -hmm. way, and all these sorts of things that get you out there doing your thing that serves your contract and then coming home with that and making those discoveries and learning those things. And so 
it, it tries to ride that line. I mean, you can't have a pure genre very easily. I mean, right. defining it's hard enough. And um, certainly once anything hits it. the players, it becomes the genre of hilarious Max Senate comedy, regardless of what it was. Totally. <laughs> and the game is actually very much designed to have a lot of player input, mm-hmm. because um, one of the types of projects you can do is retirement project, because you're a contractor in space. You want to be out of this someday, right. uh, especially because you're like Anagath, you know, unaging virtual immortal. So you really want to retire before you're killed for reals. So um, you do like a retirement project between every contract, and those are based on the opportunities that you find on, during your contract. So that, that would be the one big score that you can pay off yes. the mortgage on your ship and get out. Yeah, basically. So you have like a debt score and then you have to build up these shares by doing these projects in between. And that kind of takes care of, you know, how the players always, hey, we found a mine. We're going to just stay here and mine this mine and make mm-hmm. more money. All those opportunities that they find are fed back into this system. Right. They can still they be earning nine and a half percent on their mine, but they still have to go right. out and, you know, round up a rogue methane moon or something. Exactly. Right. So the answer is you are still staying there and mining your mind, except you're not just staying there, you're going and doing something else. Yeah, more like you're grabbing the claim and selling right. it. Or you, doing you something have guys for that. For right. it. Because you're not allowed, specifically in the game, there's a principal play called Above and Beyond, which isn't a reference, honest. Yeah, it is. It's totally a reference. Um, and you're above everybody. You're like, you have more technology than most of the other people you're going to run into. Your ship is all configurable, unlike everyone else's. But you're also outsider. You're a complete outsider, not allowed to uh, interact with uh, the economies of local systems. You actually have to buy privilege to have local cash mm-hmm. to deal with each planet, because each planet has its own economy, and they don't want, you know, other worlds kind of getting involved, because it'll blow up their economies. So you have to, like, buy that with your useful mm-hmm. experience points. Right. Residual value of your cargo. Space mercantilism. Yes. Run amok. They always... They always space games always turn out a little mercantile. Mm-hmm. So, uh, how do you support the GM who has a group of players who are really into this? Let's say they are accountants and lawyers, <laughs> uh, and you are neither, uh, but you know they really want to play this game of problem solving and making money and, and retiring. Uh, how does the system support uh, the GM and protecting them from players who are better at arbitrage than they are? Well, I suppose it, that comes down to the project system again. Uh, everything's based on that contract. You don't deal with, like, real-world numbers. You have to turn that into cargo every time. When you finish contracts, it all becomes cargo. Um, so it all feeds through those systems, so you never have to get into spreadsheets. That was, like, one of the pillars, because making a spreadsheet to deal with trade is oh, a lot of work, and GMs don't have time for that. Uh, the other support stuff is there's a whole set of section. There's a whole section of the book, probably about the same size as the rest of the book, all about preparing everything you need, all the characters and locations, including that sort of interchange. So about how long, I mean, Traveler famously fit a entire planet into, you know, 10, 10 single digits of code. Uh, other space games have been more prolix with their setting material. About how big... Physically, is a is a space encounter when you when you're saying you've prepped the planet or you've prepped the encounter. Is that like a page of work? Is that a, 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 a folder of work? Is that a paragraph? How how big is that? And then the GM says, "All right, I think I'm ready. I can run this planet and have it be the focus of some story or whatever else." Well, in the game, we break down prep 
into kind of small bits based on if it's a location or it's a character. Mm-hmm. Characters have agenda that tell them what they're trying to do. Right. And you can take your own notes to decide where they are and that sort of thing. But I give you sheets, actual sheets for the GM. There's way more than there are for the player. And they can make every character and basically a group of descriptors. Um, I don't go as far as just having a number code. Mm-hmm. Those are kind of hard to read for a layman. But it's basically a uh, four-inch tall by paper width. Right, so like a, a, a meaty paragraph, basically. Yeah, it's just got a bunch of stats on it, some tags, that sort of thing. So that's the world. And then you could, any settlements you wanted to go to. And if there's a site, like a... Um, archaeological site. Sorry. Archaeological site or a lab you want to raid or something, then you would make that site up and you might make a really simple region-based map because they use like the zone... Based right, system, yeah. mm-hmm. but you only just find the regions because the right. zones are on the floor. So it's so it's relatively low prep or light prep uh, in terms of just what you have to have at the table before you can launch into the fun. And yeah. Do, do you, so does that encourage people to maybe uh, cycle through their contracts and have the game sort of resolve one or two sessions per contract, or is the notion that a single contract might last you know a great good long while, depending on how fascinating the atmosphere? Uh, readings turn out to be or whatever. Um, yeah, I found that they sometimes do last that long. It depends on your players quite a bit. Everything always depends on the players, sure. But uh, they're kind of designed, and I actually did a, a pass recently, um, a few months before I got through all the kickstarting stuff, on actually condensing that. Because right. the idea is to have one, two, maybe three sessions, especially if you take a long time in negotiation to do the contract and then cycle through because when I found when you get longer ones you don't you just do a con- one contract as your whole adventure mm-hmm. and I wanted it to be multiple contracts because right. it's much more interesting the first one you discover the alien brain stuff and the th- next one you sell them to someone and then the next one you deal with the aftermath of it and then you- and I find that when you're when you're forced into a relatively small bunch of parameters like that or in a, a small space to express everything that's important you you don't have to sort of like fumfer around and, and and put in a lot of endless stuff that you know a is only going to distract the players from the story and b maybe you weren't that inspired that day and so what you had to sort of just spin it out and it wasn't really meaty and good but whether you're the designer or you're the GM if you have you know four questions to answer most people can come up with four good answers right oh definitely and it's uh this lets there's charts and stuff through it so you can go through and. Every chart in the game that is appropriate for such a thing that requires a decision isn't based on something you've already decided. Right. Has a random number. Right. So every chart can be randomly rolled. Fantastic. So you can randomly just make so a picture and be So like, great. That is Bronze Age technology that we have foolishly abandoned. So good for you for uh, uh, recuperating it. Yes, you can have random aliens on random planets doing random things. That, it, it, it works. Why? Like, Why did we depart? Because from the it? world of problem solving is random stuff comes to punch you in the face yeah. while you're trying to get your duct tape around this thing, mm-hmm. and the players go off and figure out something better to do anyway. So right, it right. didn't matter how random it was to begin with. Right. Um, so how do uh, how are characters differentiated from each other? From each other, um, one of the main aspects of. Uh, uh, crew member commissioning, as we like to call it, is uh, you choose your two stations on board the ship. So the ship's like a small ship of like three to five player or people who are obviously players because we wanted to keep it down to that kind of size. And um, 
each of them takes on two stations. There are stations that are obviously useful for the ship, like Gunner, who's good at pulse projection and shields and sensor analyst. And there's other ones like Recon, who's like an athletics expert and that sort of thing. And you can combine those two together to create your character. Then you also add a background to that. So you get those things, and they give you packages of skills that are appropriate to that. And then you get to customize it a little bit at the end, too. So you always end up with a pretty custom character. I've never had a group of people who are like, hey, we're all the same. There's always, I've got strengths and weaknesses because that one thing it gives you is expertise. So every skill has up to three dice in it, and only an expert can have three dice. Right. And then you add that to a specialty. So I can have as many dice as you, but not max out as much as you could, as an example. So how do you uh, approach sort of the, the... What would you say is the theme of the game? What is its, what is its ethos? I've been thinking about this a lot. Uh, there's a couple things. I think space is one of the main themes, and it's, it's in the name. I mean, kind of... Because space divides everybody apart, keeps you all separate. It also makes you independent, because there's no, like, like multi-system Ansible. Like, you can only really communicate within system. It also is the main technology allows folding of space, which allows you to move around in the world and in, in, in the sector. Um, the other thing is it's a tension, poles perhaps, between uh, freedom and, like, oppression. Because you become a free spacer, and you're, you're free. You can go off and do fly around. You have a great ship that's configurable, and you can change it any way you want. But you're begotten to your patron, your patron requires you work for just them or maybe just them and other clients and you have to do these jobs. It's the only way you can live because you're separated from all other, like, all the worlds. You're an outsider now. But if you stayed back in your old life, you would have been like a drifter or stuck in, like, a brutal bureaucracy or whatever you decide as players to make up your world to be because you get to decide those things. So the oppression and the freedom kind of come hand in hand. And even in retirement, you one of the things you have to choose is the faction you're joining. So you're just basically trading one type of freedom for another type of oppression and uh, getting another type of freedom out of it. Well, that's the Canadian part of the game. Yeah, right. I was yeah. going to say, I wonder what country this game was designed in. <laughs> Something doer. <laughs> it's cold, and your contractor who's weirdly oppressed but still free. Uh, sounds so, like Canada. Yeah, and, and the video game industry, which you are experienced in. Uh, so how did, how did your video uh, game design uh, inform this, if at all? Um, it definitely informed it because the game is very systems first. I create, instead of creating a bunch of content, like you'll get a lot of games and you have a lot of awesome stuff, right? I don't love creating awesome stuff. I'd rather you as a GM create an awesome thing and then you love it more than you would ever love any awesome thing that I made. There might be some things you guys create that everybody love more than their stuff, but probably (laughs) not me. Um, So I created systems for them to create their own settings stuff. I, the only basis is there was recently Exploration Wars. It just ended. There are three main societies. Each is divided into factions. And then you decide all the details, how it hammed out, who was the old gold powerful empire beforehand, and who are they now. All these sorts of things. So I created all these systems. I created systems for prep. I created systems to create things that you might deal with on planets. All this sort of stuff. So you basically go through. It's, it's a bit of a system handbook where it allows you to kind of create your own thing that is 
essentially free spacer, but will be different from his free spacer and her free spacer. So you've been working on this for a while. Did you uh, predict uh, when you started that you'd be releasing it at a time when uh, tariffs and economic barriers between uh, uh, worlds would become uh, ever more salient? Well, I hadn't thought of that, but it seems it seems like it's a good positioning for it. I kind of wish I would have released it before as many sci-fi games would have started coming out, but I guess I'm in good company, so that's always it a good It means go. people are, are interested. You know, like engine. they say, you know, people ion engine when it's ion engineering time, right? Uh, so uh, people can, uh, if people are listening to this when the Kickstarter is on, they can obviously find it by searching... Free Spacer on Kickstarter. Or yes. clicking the link in the show notes. Or clicking the link in the show notes. Uh, where can they find you in general online? Uh, I, I'm i on Twitter. I'm on the internet. And your Twitter handle is? It's Zofra, which is X-O-P-H-R-A. <laughs> yes, it's weird. It's kind of like my name, but cut off. And uh, freespacer.com. And there's a Google Plus community you can find by typing in Free Spacer. And, a free, and one on Facebook, even. It's, it's pretty much all over there. Uh, well, great. Uh, we have some exotic crystals for you to mine, so uh, we'll uh, end this segment and uh, get you to work on that. And I, I hope you manage to have a nice, comfy retirement, Christoph. Right. Thank Just you. I'm one, more job. <laughs> one more job. Just one more job. One more What happens when your steampunk RPG gets parasites in it? Well, actually, it's a parasitical game system that is added into your steampunk that RPG. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Keep this dungeon from running out of gold by joining such Patreon backers as... Nathan Merritt. Roger Edge. Neil Dalton. Neil Kaplan. And Oren Gashuri. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon backer David Shaw asks Ken and Robin, assuming one could overcome the practical difficulties of actually doing it. <laughs> That's a mighty big assuming, David Shaw. Yes, I what, think we could do a whole segment just uh, On the practical difficulties. Yeah. What would be the effect of inscribing an elder sign on Cthulhu, him, 
self or itself, depending. Cthulhu's gender is assumed as male by Lovecraft, but obviously Cthulhu is a giant blobby alien from beyond our uh, natural laws, so it is just as good a term as the next one. Yes. But the larger point is, let's say that you somehow carved an elder sign into its flesh, what would happen? Robin, do you have a theory? So, uh, obviously this has to be either the beginning uh, of the story or a, a false ending to what seems to be the story. Uh, I think that first, I think briefly we have to like think about what the, the qualities of, of this would be that, uh, you know, it's tattoo Cthulhu that you're, uh, I imagine there would have to be a ritual of some kind to do that. And yeah, you could uh, just be up there in a uh, Star Wars uh, laser and just beam it down at him from space. That would be uncool. No. I mean, uh, it would be cool, but it wouldn't be magically effective. Exactly. So, I guess our question, oh, expert on all things Lovecraftian, is uh, what do we know about the Elder Sign uh, that would enable us to know what happens? Well, the to, to the extent that we know anything about the Elder Sign, which is not that much, in the pure Lovecraftian sense, the Elder Sign is a swastika-shaped sign. <laughs> Thanks, HP. That um, <laughs> uh, drives the uh, uh, minions of Cthulhu, the the Deep Ones, away, and was used by the Pacific Islanders in their war against uh, Cthulhu in their own uh, archipelagos before uh, it gets transferred up to Innsmouth. Um, that's pretty much all we know about it, and it's not even called the Elder Sign there. It's just a Sartan sign, as Zadok says. Then some people conflate that with the pentagonal-shaped uh, sign found all over the stones, the star stones in Antarctica. Uh, at the time, uh, I believe that uh, Lovecraft's characters speculate that they're currency. My current theory is they're rifle bullets, um, and that they've stumbled on this giant battlefield where they've been expending these Elder Sign ammunition against the Shoggoths and the Cthuloids and whatnot, to probably not a lot of effect. Um, but the uh, Shoggoths tend not to like the pentagonals because of their objection to the uh, Crinoids and vice versa. So, Perhaps it also helps you keep Shoggoths at bay. Another elder sign in the Dreamlands is just used as a sort of a, a recognition sign. A, hey, how's it going? And you see the elder sign flashed at you, and you're like, yep, that guy's uh, woke. He's woke to Cthulhu. Uh, he's problems. Uh, don't mess with him. Right, and there's other variants. There's there's the sort of leafy-looking one, the kind of olive-branchy one. Which, right, that's uh, the one from Lovecraft's Letters. Right, uh, and that would be... Uh, if you're going to inscribe something on Cthulhu, that's pretty easy to draw. Mm -hmm. The, uh, the Chaosium one is not only, first of all, you would have to, like, call up Jeff and Rick and get permission. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think they would want you to sign a pretty heavy waiver before giving yeah. you the rights to their elders. Something like, don't mention Jeff and Rick during the ritual, that yeah, kind of thing. Exactly. And, and also, it, it's harder to draw. So I, I would prefer the, the leafy one. So, uh, there are several options then. First of all, uh, one of them is that it's an anticlimax, that a thing that scares your deep ones and keeps your Shagas at bay, well, the big kahuna itself, Cthulhu, uh, it, it is a mere pish and a tosh to him. Uh, so, you know, wh why, what would she care? Right. And so in, in that instance, the, the consequence of uh, you doing that is that Cthulhu allows you to feel that you've gotten something o over on it and then squishes you like a bug. Um, which would be a, a, you know, classic horror irony, uh, but also will make for a short segment. So, uh, the next thing is that, uh, Cthulhu, uh, uh, and, you know, if, if it's Neuralethotep, this makes a little more sense. Cthulhu, I think, uh, is a little more indifferent to us on the, on the scale of indifference, not as is off indifferent, but, you know, 
Cthulhu cares a little less about us than, than uh, otherwise, but perhaps, you know, uh, Cthulhu, she's been hanging around uh, under under the waves and uh, is a little bored. Well, uh, perhaps uh, Cthulhu decides, uh, I'm going to play along with this for a while, and uh, why don't I just let them think they have me under their sway? Because that th- that's the interesting and fun part, right? Is right. that if you could, if if it's just Cthulhu vanishes beneath the waves, well, uh, that would also be good, right? That that mm-hmm. uh, you know is a fun. And it beats him being above the waves. Yes, uh, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, go back to that eternal sleep. That that's good. Uh, but again, segment ender. So uh, let's say that uh, you now feel as a group that you have control to some extent or another over Cthulhu. Um, and that control could be, oh, well, Cthulhu will be relatively quiescent toward us, and maybe we can, you know, summon a Zothian or two every so often and, and have a, you know, a, a mini Cthulhu, as, as it will, uh, do your bidding. And so uh, that gets us in the, the classic way to screw over a group of player characters, which is to give them dangerous power and sit back and watch the results. Right. So uh, my players could have already told you this, but that's what I would do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I would give you either the, the illusion of power over Cthulhu or the reality of power over Cthulhu. And uh, oh, what does absolute power do, Ken? I forget the rest um, of that. According to uh, a double-blind survey by the New England Journal of Medicine, it corrupts absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, is there is there a better way to be absolutely corrupted than by thinking you've got one over on Cthulhu? I can't currently think of one. And the and the fun thing about uh, this, just to follow you down your little rabbit trail here, is the power to summon a Zothian and have it do mostly your bidding. It's not a what do I want to say? It's not a fine manipulation power. It's not like oh, I need to get past this lock. I'm going to summon a Zothian. No, this is, I need to get past this Soviet Marine Brigade. <laughs> and, and so there is, uh, a, you know, the, the old saying that if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If yes. all you have is a, um, uh, a star spawn of Cthulhu, a star spawn of Cthulhu, everything looks like the Soviet army. And so you have a tendency to really raise the stakes of whatever it is you're doing. Whether you knew it or not, I mean, you may be thinking, well, I'll just summon this thing to destroy this island, but, you know, the Soviets are watching on their satellites, the Americans, the French, whoever, in your world, or if it's the 20s, they're, you know, they were told by coast watchers and spies, uh, radio uh, from a trawler at sea, uh, you know, do 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 someone has weaponized Case Green, and then the Smirsh is out there to murder you or torture you to get the secret of how to control these things out of you, and you've really got big problems, but unless you are willing to summon the Zothian and say, go eat Moscow, which you might be, I'm not saying don't do that, uh, then you, you're, you really raise the stakes of the game, is, is what's going on. Uh, the other possibility is that let's say that it does imprison Cthulhu to have the seal engraved upon him. Uh, the Necronomicon is as, is its wont, uh, uh, vague on the topic, but it does say, uh, the ice desert of the south and the sunken isles of ocean hold stones whereon their seal is engraved. But who hath seen the frozen city or the sealed tower long garlanded? If sealed tower is a reference to Riley and the seal is a reference to the elder sign, maybe what happened is, oh, now in Instead of the stars holding the key to Cthulhu's rise, or the Elder Gods, if you're in a Durleth universe, no, it's you. You're the guy. You've transferred control over whether Cthulhu wakes or sleeps to you. 
And if you thought the Cthulhu cult was hunting you before, oh my goodness, wait till they're hunting you. And wait till you realize there are two factions, the Cthulhu cult, the first cult that just wants to murder you and take the seal away from you, and the second cult that says, well, this guy must be a god, we should worship him. And since gods are all blobby things with tentacles, we should turn him into one so that we can worship him even better. Yeah, the, the first rule of any ritual as you're considering it is, will this turn me into a gate? <laughs> yeah. uh, and yeah. if, if the answer is yes, reconsider that ritual because... Right. Yeah. Uh, nobody wants to be a gate. Except Yog Sothoth, but he. That's really, his gig. That's his, or that's his thing. Gig. Right. Uh, yeah. Gig. Their gig. Exactly. Um, and so, uh. He's a conjuries of spheres. Right. Uh, and that's another option too, is that the, uh, the Elder Sign might bring about a, uh, not a, uh, destruction of Cthulhu, but, uh, trigger a, uh, a new cosmic cycle that, uh, creates, uh, Cthulhu 2.0. And, uh, the, the new version, is, uh, you know, not a, uh, a squamacephalopod, but is some other thing that, uh, is sort of like all of you together. You know, what if you, as a gestalt entity, all became the new, uh, you know, horrible thing and, and you could have that be the awful ending of your campaign in which, uh, the, uh, the new equivalent of Cthulhu in the, uh, the cosmic uh, deity sweepstakes is some sort of horrible amalgam of all of you, or it could just be that it's a reflection of all of your worst traits, and that you've got to find a way to. Oh, how do I put this one down? It's not an elder sign anymore, and uh, you know, and any young cosmic infinitely malign uh, or indifferent entity, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to go stomping around and uh, start eating things. Just sort of establish cred. Exactly. They're yes. going to find the biggest guy in the yard and jack him, just like in prison. Yeah, so that that would be... Uh, so, uh, oddly enough, the, the answer to this uh, question is almost o- always something even more horrible than you imagined uh, will be the thing that happens. And uh, if you're uh, if you are the living embodiment of the of the gate, as you suggest, Cthulhu is still inside you. Still scrabbling to get out, but instead of sending his dreams out to every madman and uh, mediocre artist in the world, they're all coming to you. And um, uh, it's like, uh, you know, the uh, the horrible uh, uh, id within, only it's uh, because it's Cthulhu, he already knows and owns all of your uh, worst impulses and most hideous thoughts and uh, stuff that goes all the way back to the aquatic ape times. Um, and you didn't even know you had those desires, but now you do because Cthulhu has just flipped all those switches in your limbic system. And you have to maintain like total ascetic control of yourself because the instant you give in to anything, well, now you've opened a little way for Cthulhu to eke out into the world. Yeah, since uh, and since uh, mythos entities uh, on that scale exist outside space, in time, what might happen is that you uh, inscribe the uh, elder sign on on Cthulhu, and then uh, when you're done, you look around you and oh look, it's twenty thousand years into the future, and the main sapient species are sort of like these wormy grasshopper things. And uh, oops, I I seem to have put myself forward in time as well as uh, imbuing myself uh, momentarily with a, a chunk of cosmic power. And it's like, oh, can I? Can I get back to Connecticut? Or, I mean, not back Connecticut over there with the writhing <laughs> things on it, but like the one with like Regular cars and streets and stuff. Uh, so yeah, th- that's yet another awful, horrible thing that you could do with this supposedly airtight plan of inscribing the Elder Sign on Cthulhu. So I, I think we've uh, come up with enough horrible possibilities and consider the work of this segment done and move on to the next one.
Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agents Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and source books. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? It's time to creep our way up the creaky cobweb stairs, uh, past the portrait of Madame Blavatsky, who, uh, despite her glowering countenance, we will nonetheless give a friendly wave to as we pop on through to the Edwardian parlor where dwells the consulting occultist. And this time around, the consulting occultist is here to satisfy the demands of Patreon backer Hal Mangold, who asks, what's the deal with the Australian artist and occultist Rosalie Norton and her awesome esoteric illustrations. So, Ken, this is a fascinating character uh, I was unaware of until Hal asked this question, and I did a little bit of research, and uh, I guess the way we start is that she was born in 1917, uh, she died in 1979, and uh, she uh, became uh, something of a, a flashpoint uh, in a, a uh, you know, if, if people think Canadian society was conservative in the 40s and 50s, and Boy, it was, and boy, would Rosalind Norton have been a big uh, freaking people out deal here. Australia is that cubed. Uh, so I guess we start with the story of her apparently miraculous birth. She was uh, uh, born in New Zealand. Which right there, um, because she uh, was born uh, to an island that produces only halflings and yet became a witch. <laughs> so already she was able to cross class, cross species obviously working from an edition we haven't seen. Yeah, she did a lot of multi-classing. So she was mm-hmm. born uh, with uh, supposedly with uh, pointed ears, uh, markings on her knee, and a strand of loose flesh, uh, which uh, I don't know if I want to picture that in any more detail. Yeah, I don't know if the strand of loose flesh is the traditional uh, call that is supposed to foretell uh, uh, preternatural powers, or if it's some new and exciting strand of flesh that I, not being either a perinatal surgeon or a witch hunter are familiar with. Right. If I, if I was creating a fictional character who was born that way, they would have kept the loose flesh yeah. now desiccated in a, in a locket. Yes, it, it has to a, be in a box, and then uh, just like in Greek myth, if it's ever burned, then your magic power goes away. Right. Um, and so uh, uh, Rosalind Norton's connection with uh, the uh, gothic and the uh, horrific and the strange came to her uh, quite early. She was... Uh, uh, kicked out of Anglican girls' school because her drawings of demons and vampires uh, freaked out uh, her fellow students and upset them, uh, whereas now, of course, it would uh, get her job working for us at Pelgrane Drawing Cool Things. Absolutely. And uh, so, and she works... So at, any any Anglican girls out there listening, this is your opportunity. <laughs> yes, uh, it, it, don't, it does get Don't better. listen to the headmaster. <laughs> um, yeah, and then she uh, uh, became a writer, uh, wrote some horror stories, and... Uh, 
did illustrations until they nearly got the paper shut down, so she got bounced from there. Yes, her, uh, her drawings she, were too good uh, too to be Too creepy. Yes. And she uh, was an artist's model for Norman Lindsay, who is probably, I would suspect, the other vector of her... Uh, sexual pantheism, if I want to use that term. Her interest in the Gothic, I think, maybe takes its specifically panistic turn uh, with uh, Norman Lindsay, who, as we all learned from the movie Sirens, was all about that stuff uh, when he was just Sam Neill, a simple working man trying to paint Elle McPherson. Um, and uh, she, by the way, would not be Elle McPherson. She's more of an Agnes Moorhead type, I think, uh, if you're trying to picture Rosalind Norton in your head. In your head. And then she uh, begins to read a bunch of books on Western magical tradition, including our old buddy Alistair Crowley, who becomes yet another vector for her. I don't know if she has any direct connection to Spare. Her art has a spare sort of a tendency. It also right. looks and sort of Austin sub- Osman Spare, the occultist right. and illustrator. We've also discussed. It looks sort of sub-Blakeian to me in some ways as well. Uh, I am a gigantic Blake fan, and I will take uh, Hal's word for it that Rosalind uh, Norton's art is crazy awesome. It uh, looks like someone who is a big Blake fangirl uh, um, to me personally. Yeah, and it has sort of a, a more cartoony uh, thing going on as well with this sort of rounded Rubenesque uh, uh, witches and stuff. So there's even a bit of a bit of a visual parallel with uh, Frank Kelly Frias. Mm-hmm. It's got that yeah. sort of. It, it's really uh, fun and the. the uh, color oh, it's, sense yeah, great. it's great fun. I I'm, yes. would never question the funness of uh, various uh, goat demons. Right, but like uh, you know, would fit better than Blake on uh, yeah. in, in one of our books. Let us right. Say. Yeah. Well, in some of our books, I'm yes. pretty sure that even today we couldn't print Fohat. Yes. Uh, which is a uh, sort of a, a, a Baphomet uh, figure uh, with a, a a coiled snake for a phallus. Uh, yeah. And uh, that caused a lot of censorship problems uh, for her over the years. Yes. In in a in another prefigurement of the um, uh, RPG field, uh, a publisher named Walter Glover, um, uh, they, they, her and her, to skip ahead a bit, she had a boyfriend who was a surrealist poet named Gavin Greenlees, and uh, they uh, cohabited and did magic together and et cetera, et cetera, and the cops didn't like that any of that. And, um, uh, they arrested them for vagrancy, which you could do even if you had a house uh, in Australia. If you had no visible job, which meant right. you were a poet or an artist or an <laughs> artist also or, some, or something even worse than a poet or an artist. Right. But, uh, Glover said, no, they're my assistants. I've hired them to assist me in making a book of, uh, Rosalind Norton's art, which again, in classic RPG fashion, wound up being super expensive, bankrupted the publisher, got them again, shut down by the cops and, uh, the binder kept the best piece, uh, and never gave it back. And that was Fohat. So if you were looking for Fohat, the binder had it. And then I guess he may have sold it to a collector later, but that, that was a fun story, but uh, it, it ends nicely because Glover eventually gets the rights back and does a facsimile edition. Right. But the book does attract the attention of a English classical music composer and conductor named Eugene Goosens, who is another Crowleyan, and he read the art of Rosalind Norton in a bookshop because this is such a he's such an awful person. He sounds like, and then he goes and he writes for the artist. She invites him by for tea, and he becomes part of the magic circle and part of the menage uh, with Greenless and uh, Norton, and then uh, gets arrested in the uh, in the Sydney airport for trying to import pornographic photographs uh, to Australia. It ruins his his career. His association yeah, with just her. destroys it utterly, and uh, then. Uh, that 
is maybe the trigger for Greenlee's uh, collapsing, or maybe it is not, but he has his mental health uh, breakdown at that point, and um, uh, uh, she has to uh, sort of let him go. And that, I think, is why during the 60s, when in theory she should be out there letting her freak flag fly and being, I was cool before any of you people were hippies, she's just sort of keeping to herself and not doing as much publicity work and just, you know, staying, staying on the DL there in, in Sydney. Right, and then there's another story where there's a a troubled woman who goes to the cops and says that she was a uh, classic, you know, I was drawn into the black mass story, uh, except in mm-hmm. uh, 20th century Which Australia. Which is a, a vile slander because Rosalind Norton was a witch, not a Satanist. Yes. Get it right. She was uh, a pan uh, was, was her pal. So, uh, and she had her own particular uh, take on uh, a pan worship and, and, uh, and Wiccanism called the goat fold. Do you, uh, know how that differed from uh, other streams? I mean, part of it is just that the, I mean, it, it, reading about it, it seems very gardenary and very standard Wicca. Uh, there's a lot of naked spanking, which is uh, one of your signs that gardener is involved. But the garter, the sacred garter, is a different thing. Both men and women can wear the garter in her version. And uh, there's other sort of uh, routine differences that I suspect. I, I think uh, people are maybe not studying Wiccanism as the sort of evangelical faith that it is. People assume that because it came out of boring English people that it must somehow (laughs) resemble Anglicanism, but it resembles nothing so much in my experience as the sort of, um, you know, non-denominational church of Christ evangelical faiths because everyone starts up their own little church and they have their own little rule and their own version. And it's different from the guys down the road and they'll, talk your ear off about how it's different, but they're all about direct connection to the divine, not about what you did or didn't read in a book. And certainly you get your guidance from, in this case, Crowley or Gardner, but you have your own personal connection. And so your, you know, your thorn path is going to be the path that you've evolved by your specific ritual practice. And so if you guys have all gotten, you know, giddy and naked and spanking with pan and something really cool happened, you're like, well, that's in our ritual now. We're going to do that thing that was really cool. And um, uh, maybe that's not going to be in someone else's ritual because they never had that happen. I do want to say, uh, just for uh, the record, that according to a participant that was interviewed later, she didn't have anyone in so much a coven. Uh, according to her sister, she had a group of occult friends. <laughs> But I think Coven sounds more cool, so we're, we're going to go with Coven. Right. Um, and the Coven was actually, it was about seven people in its sort of core. There was some associate members, and I think that's just people who could be free on a Tuesday to come by and, and, and spank each other. But, you right. know. Well, the, uh, the difference between Coven and just a bunch of occult friends is that once you declare it a Coven, someone has to keep the minutes and mm-hmm. Robert's rules of order kick in. And so, you know, you want to get the rules of order. I can see that. Um, and. Yeah, and so um, she had some people that were, like, uh, Walter Glover was sort of part of her coven, but not really. Um, there was a radio announcer, a, uh, a bookie. There was a uh, guy named Foster, who was an oven maintenance engineer by day and coven high priest by night. Um, uh, his his name was the Toad, and everyone in the coven had a cool yeah. ritual name. And like if, um, if everyone uh, hasn't started making up their character sheet for him... 
I, I don't know any of you anymore. <laughs> right. Uh, Rosalind Not- Norton was the cat. There is a photograph apparently somewhere that I did not hunt down that shows her in a magical apron and cat mask and nothing else. So if you're curious for mid-50s Australian cat, there you go. That, that will launch the dark anime, I'm sure. Right. And then there are rumors... Uh, malicious rumors, according to, uh, historian Neville Drury, but I don't know how malicious it is. I guess there were more malicious at the time that the general manager of the Australian Broadcasting Commission was in the coven. So I think that begins to be our, our way into gamifying the otherwise completely harmless and delightful Rosalind Norton is that if she is working her wiles on major classical music conductors and uh, heads of Australian radio, uh, that, and with, cause we have Jack Davey, prominent radio announcer in her coven already, or her group of occult friends, um, then maybe there's something going on in terms of spreading the will of pan over Australia to sort of break it out of its, uh, square status. Right. Uh, and I would definitely, uh, you know, want to make, uh, them the, uh, eccentric and perhaps dysfunctional group of good guys who are, you know, fighting the, the broader force of uh, stultifying, or even if they're even if they're you know if they accidentally are doing bad, it's not because they're evil. It's because they're really in it for the spanking and the cool art, not so much for the rest of it. And that's one way to do it. But if they're you know facing censorship and persecution just for being counterculture uh, two decades early, uh, you know, right. I, I want to have the you know the the real demon is some sort of uh, enemy of Pan that is trying to uh, imprison right. Pan into a. Uh, a world the real of, demon is Apollo. Of, uh, yes, uh, some sort of dull, you know, or some sort of grim Teutonic uh, figure from the north who just wants to uh, make everything icy and dull. She um, she also was influenced by voodoo. Uh, she has a, a design called, or a piece of art called the Rites of Baron Samadhi, and she said that a lot of her rituals brought in uh, not just standard Crowley and sex magic, but also voodooism, uh, uh, voodoo, uh, rights that to the extent she could have known about them, which probably from Maya Darren's book and, uh, Tantra as well, because why not throw it all in, throw it all in, see what happens. Um, she did not, uh, conduct blood sacrifice. She was against that. She thought it was disgusting. So that would separate her from sort of your classical pan worship, which was all about tearing things limb from limb. But, uh, she, uh, uh, worshipped Pan and Hecate, but not in a bloodletting way. So again, uh, that is a vile canard. And as uh, often happens, uh, sh- her reputation got a revival after her death. And uh, so in the 2000, uh, I guess one collector bought everything. And uh, mm-hmm. there have been a, a, a reissue of that then controversial uh, book. And there have been uh, gallery shows and stuff. And so her uh, story and her art have uh, come uh, more to the fore uh, now that, uh, you know, I, I guess Australia is, uh, you know, uh, wild and loose now. And uh, the uh, images from her art are, are no longer a threat and are now uh, cool and, and goth and and, uh, and adorable, which they are in, in addition. Yeah, to they're part cool of they're part of Australia's artistic heritage. Yes, indeed. Uh, this has been an Australian minute. And uh, on that note, <laughs> it's time to uh, uh, head on out. Uh, they, we have Canadian minutes. They must have Australian minutes. Uh, and, uh, it's time yeah, for but a, they go the other way because it's the other side of the world. Exactly. It's, it's a negative minute, whatever that is. Right. Uh, so on that note, uh, before we get sucked into a negative minute, it's time for us to, uh, bid farewell. Uh, but we'll be back next week with more Ken and Robin hijinks. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask the Gown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Recharge this podcast elder sign by joining such Patreon backers as... Peter Williamson. Simon Proctor. Drew Clory. Anders Moline. And Jacques Devilliers. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other Aerialite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as Start With Earth. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>